0: My guest on this episode is Lylan Masterman, General Partner at White Star Capital. Lylan heads up White Star's New York office, which is just one note in what you'll learn is a global investing platform with hubs in New York, London, Paris, Montreal, and Tokyo. In our conversation, we learn a great deal about White Star's approach, some great companies they've backed, and about the lens through which they see the world as investors. As you'll see, Lylan not only has a tremendous technical background, but also a huge enthusiasm for venture investing and working with great founding teams, which is absolutely contagious. He shares a great deal of his learnings with us on a host of fascinating topics, such as the myriad dynamics of serving on a board, the various overlapping layers of relationships within the venture ecosystem, the need for a strong finance leader at certain phases in a startup's life cycle, and many more key insider insights the theme of trust and mutual success echoes throughout his remarks and leaves quite the impression. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Let's head on up to the office. You're in the office, baby. Welcome back to Venture Studio, the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 70 plus companies and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University,
1: interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem.
0: Lylan, it's great to have you on. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, Dave. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. I think some congratulations are in order. You were recently uh, promoted to general partner at White Star Capital. You're leading their New York City presence. Bravo. Congratulations.
1: Thanks, Dave. You know, we've known each other for a while, and uh, it's a hustle to get to this point, and I'm really (laughs) honored because the founders of White Star, um, I'm the first person and the only person so far that they've invited to join the partnership. So, you know, I, I owe it all to them for inviting me in.
0: That's great. No, I'm, I'm excited for you. Um, so I thought we'd begin by talking a little about White Star, telling us all about your, your platform. I know you guys are international, but give us a sense of the size, the stage, you know, all of that stuff.
1: Yeah, so the name White Star actually comes from the name of the first cruise line across the Atlantic, White Star Lines. Mm. <laughs> uh, I actually have some friends who, when they were teenagers, had posters of White Star Lines like in their bedroom. <laughs> Okay. Um, and so part of our DNA since day one has been to be transatlantic. Hmm. And so from the very beginning, we had offices in New York, Montreal, and London. And everyone in the team had done international uh, software in some way, be it developing software for international markets, be it selling products or helping do business development internationally, hmm. or helping companies get acquired internationally through M&A deals. Um, we've all, we have all have that international experience. Uh, and since that first fund, which was a $70 million fund, uh, we have since added a Paris office, mm. and we also have a venture partner in Tokyo and Seoul. And so that's been really helpful at helping our companies continue to scale internationally, to do business development internationally, uh, and to get partnerships and clients across the world. Because ultimately, if your product can be used by clients across all countries of the world, why would you ever want to ignore that addressable market? Right, right.
0: No, no, fantastic. So you guys are in, I know you're in New York City with you, Paris, Tokyo, where else are you? you
1: London and Montreal.
0: And Montreal, okay, fantastic. And you guys, you've got that international platform. Tell us about the stage you invest in and tell us about the themes I've read the themes on your site I've heard them from you but let let us know uh, what what you look for.
1: Yeah, so our sweet spot is a Series A. Um, we do invest in Series Bs, and I know we'll want to talk about uh, our most recent Series B in a few minutes. And we also do sometimes some seeds and even some pre-seeds with people that we know well. But the sweet spot is a Series A, um a of let's say five to fifteen million. Um, is, is a nice uh, round size for us, where White Star, normally we co-lead our rounds. And so we're not afraid to go out and be the lead, but we also enjoy having another valuable investor uh, to be beside us and to be bringing different out-of-value to the portfolio companies than what we bring. Uh, and we think it's better for the company to have one additional party at the table. And so that's why we like to say that we co-lead rounds But sometimes we're the first one to lead, and then we'll help the entrepreneur go find that co-lead when it's appropriate. Uh, In terms of the three themes, you have the digitalization of finance, which those are big words for fintech. And that includes insurance tech and blockchain uh, and uh, credit scoring, um, always backed by data and AI. Um, The second vertical is the disruption of commerce. Now, a lot of people, when they hear me say that, they immediately think, oh, e-commerce. You guys invested in Dollar Shave Club and you invested in Freshly. Okay, yes, absolutely. But it's also, what are retailers doing to compete with Amazon? What do stores and retailers do to improve their back office? So, there are different ways of disrupting commerce. Um, And uh, a company, Kimi, is disrupting the commerce of locksmiths, right? And so... And uh, so there are different ways of disrupting commerce. Then the third uh, vertical or theme, if you will, is we call it sensors and algorithms. Um, That includes Internet of Things. It includes companies where, by definition, the algorithms are key. Um, I like to refer to that bucket or that theme as companies where technology and the quality of their tech is their leading competitive differentiator. Yes, they've got great sales. Yes, they have great marketing. But at the end of the day, all of that is enabled only because their technology is amazing.
0: That's, in that category, that is especially critical to you guys,
1: in the sensors and algorithms. Yeah, you know, it's one of our three themes. And so a disrupt, an e-commerce company does not need to have the most amazing, bleeding edge tech, right? But if you're gonna be in that third theme of sensors and algorithms, then the quality of your technology is absolutely critical.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, understood. Um, let Let's dive into these categories, and maybe we'll maybe you can use some companies as some examples. Like in disruptive commerce, you mentioned KiMi. Uh, I'm an investor in KiMi. I, I know Greg Marsh very well. Uh, it's It's a remarkable story. Uh, I, where, where are they now? Series D or something?
1: Something like that. It's It's a beautiful company. Uh, they've been been able to bring really senior level talent to the company now, and that's always a great sign when a CEO like Greg is able to surround himself with such amazing C level and VP level talent, in addition to the individual contributor level. And
0: what was appealing about the idea of Kimi to you guys in the beginning? You know, putting it's basically um, the digitization of keys. The solving of the locksmith problem, right? And back when he started, a lot of people said, "Well, that, that doesn't sound too exciting." You know, a guy, okay, I lose my key once in a while. Guy breaks my door, okay, I pay him three hundred. But people don't stand stand around worrying about that too much.
1: <laughs> so uh, I have a funny anecdote with Kimi. So uh, a year and a half ago, I moved apartments, and what do you do after you move apartments? You go to Bed Bath and Beyond. You always need something for your uh, for your apartment, right? And I, I, was, I was fairly tired that day. I just wanted to get things done and get back to my place. And so I make my purchase. And I'm trying to walk out the door of Bed Bath & Beyond. And there's this queue of people blocking the exit. And I'm a little cranky. I'm like, why are all these people here? And then I look, and they're queued up to use the Kimi kiosk. Of course, that made my day. It made me happy. I took I stepped back. I took a picture of the queue uh, of people. Um, but, you know, looking back at the original investment, the machine vision algorithms that are required to make Kimi as efficient as it is, to have such a high level of accuracy of being able to truly copy those keys and print a key that when you get home, it actually works. Those are very complex algorithms. And so there's some real defensibility there. Where if someone were to try to copy Kimi, it's not just about creating a, a dumb kiosk and getting a whole bunch of partnerships with stores the, the product has to work beautifully uh, and that's what Kimi does
0: yeah yeah and and Greg is maniacal about quality and it's it's extraordinary and he's in most of the big box retailers now around the country it, it's a remarkable story uh, you've you guys have recently announced a, a few other investments uh I've seen Unicast, uh, Manubo, Manubo, and and maybe Drop. Where where do these tell us a little about one or two of those and where they fit in your thesis?
1: Yeah, you know there are um, three very different stories. So Drop, uh, the CEO there, the founder Derek Fung, we'd known him for a long time, and he had sold his previous company. And then after his retention period, he wanted some time to figure out what to do next. So we invited him to join White Star as our entrepreneur in residence. I see. So that's an example of us going earlier stage than what we normally do, uh, but with someone who we knew, who we trusted, and now has continued to build a great business. The uh, The app on the App Store at first reached number two in the Canadian App Store behind only Tinder. Nice. Kind of hard to compete with Tinder. And uh, in the U.S., uh, the app reached a peak of number three in the U.S. app store. And so now, as you mentioned, uh, NEA led the most recent $21 million round. Um, And it's been an honor and a joy to be helping Derek along the way uh, as the company continues to grow and the sky's the limit. Um, Nubo, our story with Nubo is is more of the conventional, if you will, investment for White Star. We led their $6 million Series A. and we had a good co-investor with us who you know, remains really good friends and good co-investors too. And it was more of a typical story. We met the company, we did our diligence, we loved what they were doing in data science for the manufacturers of IoT devices. Interesting. Right? And so for Nubo clients, it's not about the end-user dashboard of an IoT device. Yes, they can help with that. But it's really about the, the machine learning the data science on the usage of those devices, and the solutions largely used in agriculture tech, in home automation, uh, in security, uh, and in like big devices such as water boilers. Um, and so you can see how what they've done is they've built a ver- their technology is agnostic to verticals because it's a data science platform, but their sales and marketing and account management do specialize per vertical. And that's something I love, when the company can scale across all verticals, but then you do need some specialists within a company. Right. 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 So I love that. The team is arguably the the best data science team in all of Montreal. And if you know about the the quality of the Montreal AI and data science scene, it's incredible. Uh, One of the three godfathers of machine learning is is in Montreal. Um, And so truly, truly amazing. Um, so that's a Nubo story. And like you said, they recently raised a $16.5 million round led by Munich Re. And the company is going to keep on growing, landing more clients. They already have, uh, just to give you an idea of their international aspect, it's company out of Montreal. Of course, they have clients in Canada and the US, and they have clients in Europe, and they have clients in Japan and other parts of Asia too now. So, you know, Montreal a, it's a nice city. What's the population? One, two million. But it goes to show that a small, uh, a startup out uh, of that kind of city can truly be an inter- in an international powerhouse. Um, and then the last company you asked about is our most recent investment, uh, and with Unicast, uh, we led their seventeen point five million dollar round. And this is an example of a company that um, that allows me to tell some of my VC friends that I think they're wrong. And what I mean by that is some of my VC friends have tweeted and have blogged, and I'm going to quote them. When a VC tells you, an entrepreneur, quote unquote, you're too early for us, Mm. what that really means is a VC does not understand your business or does not like you. (laughs) Well, that's not true in some cases. And with Unicast, I met the founders, well, now it's three years and two months ago. And I told them. You are too early for us. I really like what you're doing. Let's keep in touch. I want to track your progress. And over time, we we kept on continuing to meet around quarterly. Um, I got to track their progress. They did a little mini pivot. Mm -hmm. And then they started landing real clients with real revenue. And then had a material plan for scaling across multiple verticals, as we discussed with Nubo, using a nice generic data platform. And that's why, three years later, from the original introduction, that White Star led the Unicast round. And that, of course, again, is a international company that started in Oslo, Norway, and then expanded into New York. The CEO lives here in New York. Half the team is here in New York. Uh, and at the end of the day, the solution is, again, a data science solution. They pull in geo data from various mobile apps on your phone that collect that collect your GPS data and they make sure it's anonymous mm-hmm. and then they run all their algorithms to then output data that can be valuable to hedge funds ad tech companies, urban planners who want to know what streets are people on and what time of day um, and all in a way that respects all the privacy laws the company was originally built out of Europe focus on the very strict European Yeah, which has laws. very
0: strict laws, yeah. Right.
1: Yep, yep. Right. So Unicast is doing things the right way, uh, which we love, of course, because that matters to us to, from an ethical perspective. Yes. But as a financial investor, I love the uh, fact that this solution can be used across so many different verticals.
0: Right. This, this reminds me of a piece you wrote, I think it was called The Age of Context, some years ago. It's almost like, uh, you know, that was your view on the world a few years ago, and... You found the company, uh, it sounds like Unicast em- embodies a lot of what you predicted is going to be happening in the world, yes?
1: Yeah, so I'll give my uh, colleague <laughs> Christian, who's okay. uh, the partner in our London office, credit for authoring that article. But yeah, White Star, if, but the, if I use the plural you of White Star. Yeah, yes, right. so White Star, White Star uh, and Christian, uh, yeah, we published that article and you know Christian really nailed it and that article still uh is symbolic of many of white star's investments today you know a few years after he wrote the, that article
0: yeah i'm going to post it in the show notes so people can read that it's it's uh basically about you know the world that we were entering into with uh, all these apis and sensors and data from our mobile phones and what that's going to lead to in in the daily fabric of our lives and it sounds like uh, Unicast is doing that on the enterprise level, and you know, has a lot of paying clients. I imagine that want this want this information. Um, you know, it's probably apparent to a lot of people listening that you have a very uh, strong data background, a uh, tech tech background. <laughs> I know you're a, a Waterloo engineer, uh, uh, and you were very early. Uh, at Microsoft, you were involved with .NET. Tell, tell folks a little about how you got into VC, a little about your background and what, what led to all this.
1: Yeah, you know, the joke that I like to make is uh, my background is really, really super boring in San Francisco. But my professional background is not unique, but it's it's not very common in New York. And what I mean by that is, as you were mentioning, I was a math and computer science double major uh, from the University of Waterloo. Um and then from there, I switched my career from software engineering into product management at Microsoft. Um, I started off in Web TV in California as an engineer. Then I worked in Canada for Microsoft Research. And then Microsoft invited me to Redmond to be part of the first team to launch .NET and Visual Studio uh, And for the people who don't know, Visual Studio is to developers what Microsoft Excel is to a banker. Right? It's a tool that the, that developers use to write all their code. Uh, and so that was a sensational experience. Um, but at the end of the day, when I joined Microsoft for Visual .net, I didn't want to join a large company, but the economy was 2001. I had no other choice. And, of course, Microsoft was the it company to be at. Google was very, very tiny. There was no Facebook. Apple was a company people made fun of. So uh, Microsoft was a great training platform. Uh, and then from there, I went to a startup. That, the product was similar to what Yammer is today. We won a lot of awards. We didn't know about the premium business model back in 2002. And so we failed to generate any meaningful revenue. Uh, and that was a great experience about um, uh, separating the difference between awards and revenue. Um, and then from there, uh, I spent close to five years at a company called AQuantive, where I led multiple products. And by the way, at all of these companies, I manage international teams in India, in Canada, in different parts of the world. I ship software in multiple languages. And at a Quantive, uh, I led multiple product lines in rich media, in targeting, in internationalization, in user experience. Uh, and across all these products, data was the most important aspect of what we we're doing. So we were a big data and analytics company that happened to be in ad tech. Um, but for me, it wasn't about the ads. It was about the data. And so in my last year in the company, uh, we were fortunate that, um, well, the way it worked out, Google acquired our competitor DoubleClick ah, for yeah. $3 billion. Yes. <laughs> and then one month later, Microsoft acquired us for $6 billion. Um, so so we like to joke that uh, at AQuantive, we were the bigger company with the smaller brand, right? Uh, and we didn't, we never specialized in PR. We would see DoubleClick, uh, do press releases of features that we had had in our product for years. And we'd never done a press release about it. And, but that was also a lesson too of like, okay, well maybe, uh, you know, later in my career, it helped me appreciate the the power of PR because even though we had that feature and, and DoubleClick didn't, and then they announced it and they got a lot of press for it, that was good for DoubleClick. So being the quiet winner works sometimes. But then also being the outspoken winner works sometimes. And you have to choose who you want to be as a company. What's your persona
0: this is um you know this is tremendous background. You're you're also one of the more technical VCs in New York City. Uh but that lesson you just described um let's let's take it into the some of the companies you work with and your your point of view like in terms of teams, right? You're all, we always talk about backing great founders, but as these companies mature, and you and I have talked about this, what is the, you know, yes, marketing, et cetera, but what are, what are often the ensembles that these great founders need around them that you've, you've learned? What mistakes do they typically make? You know, what, what are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, so uh, one common mistake that we see fairly regularly is that companies take too long to hire a really, really strong finance leader. And I'm not talking about a controller, although some companies do way too long for that too. But someone who can really analyze uh, both the KPIs and the financial figures who can help lead the way or at least guide the CEO on what, should be the milestones for upcoming, you know, fundraising or even internal goals and objectives Um, to really be that person who digs into the numbers, who's a data geek and who really just loves trying different 20 different pivots on data in order to say, now that I've crunched the numbers, here's what our OKRs should be. Here's how we're going to raise the next round of financing. Here's how we're going to make sure the business is stable, even if we fail to raise that round of financing. Um, And it's not just about the financial forecast; it's also about the KPIs and blending those together. Interesting.
0: Um, You're you're typically a Series A investor. When you know, it's it's tough to generalize, you know, too much. But what phase do you think this role is ideal to bring in someone like that?
1: It depends on the existing strengths within the founding team, right? Um, but with that, one of the other issues that we see with teams is oftentimes the CEO who has a certain strength will wait too long to hire someone below to take on that responsibility that is a CEO strength. So, for example, while well, using this example, if the CEO is already very, very strong in finance and accounting, They sometimes wait too long to bring on a head of finance, right? Or if the CEO is really strong as a product manager, they might take too long to bring on a VP product or a chief product officer. Well, there, there often is that kind of blend, and it often is a COO. So a fantastic example uh, is actually my colleague and partner out of our Montreal office, J.F. Marcoux. Uh, J.F. was previously an M&A banker. You don't need to be an m a banker, but this was his background, and it, 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 and it is a good background. And then he decided to co-found a startup in Montreal. And um, J.F. was COO. He was the one establishing all the operations, of course, all, but he was also the CFO at the same time, right? And so he was responsible for all the numbers, all hitting all the proper KPIs that then would reflect into their revenue. He was also leading a lot of their international growth. So that kind of role, it's it's not only being in Excel, right? It's being connected with the real world, with clients, and then how all that fits together in order to to generate great numbers in that Excel spreadsheet.
0: So this kind of ties into, you know, your work in VC and being on boards, et cetera. Um, I think there's a lot of opacity around this, this particular topic. Like, you know, here you are, you're investing at series A, sometimes B, you're involved in these boards, you're working with the founding teams. What kind of stuff is going on in the boardroom? What kind of things are you talking to, talking with the CEOs about talent, this and that. Give us a window into that. I think people are fascinated by that.
1: Yeah, so uh, a big part of making board meetings successful is the relationship that a CEO has with the board members in between the board meetings. That's the most important part. And so with that, um, some CEOs love to have calls every two weeks. Some CEOs love to have a text messaging relationship, right? Where, hey, I just want to send you an update and it's by text. Um, So, you know, different levels of structure. But at the end of the day, having really open lines of communication is truly critical uh, because a board member never wants to be surprised. And a CEO should never feel like they need to hide things from the board. That results in a very uh, destructive environment. Um, And it's unlikely that an environment where people hold secrets from each other is going to be successful. Um, But then on top of that, with the board meetings, there's a practice that I uh, have started doing recently based on some mentorship that I've received. Um, uh, And it's a day or two, let's say two or even three days before the board um, to, to have a call with the CEO and ask the CEO two specific questions. One is what do you want to get accomplished at this board meeting? And assuming that I'm supportive of that idea, um, how can I be helpful to get that accomplished? Right? And of course, maybe I'm not supportive. And, and then we can talk about it in the call before the board. Um, and so that's a valuable thing that also fosters great communication. And then the other question that's really, really nice to ask is, hey, I'm planning on asking you this really challenging question. And it could be about some KPIs. It can be about not hitting some metrics. It can be, why haven't you hired this person that you said you needed nine months ago? It can be, I think our strategy is off for getting to that next level of scale. I don't want to blindside you with this question. How about I tell you in advance what this hard question is going to be? We can even talk about it now. Um, And I don't want you to be scripted for your answer in the actual board meeting. But I just don't want to blindside you. This is something I've been thinking about. So those are two important questions that I very much like to ask uh, a few days before the board. Um, and I think it's really great for relationship building, but also ensuring that the CEO uh, and the board members individually, that we're all thinking collectively and trying to think ahead and challenge each other.
0: I can see that as a very strong relationship building uh, technique because you, you, you the, the founder understands... You're on their side, you're not going to blindside them in a meeting. You know, it's 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 a real collegial uh team relationship, right? And so, but again, these are some tough questions at the same time, right? Where you're challenging each other. Um sticking on the subject of boards, when you come on a board for the first time, you know, that first board meeting, you've made an investment, you've led an investment. Give us what's the thinking going on there you, you what goes on in the first board meeting? what happens there, and then how does it progress over the first year, and then how does it change the next year? I mean, give us a, a little window into how how all that works. I know it's different uh, from company to company, but you know just in general terms
1: normally the first board meeting's so exciting it's it's kind of like going to school for the first day <laughs> okay. uh, of the school year right okay. <laughs> uh, you're going to be catching up with your friends. Uh, you know, you're going to have to learn new things. Um, and so normally it's quite exciting. Um, on the other hand, I, uh, I was part of one board uh, a prior firm where the first board meeting was not so good, where we learned all kinds of bad things that were hidden during uh, our due diligence process, where some of the other investors... Had not disclosed some things, and we were friends, um, and we had a little bit of a WTF talk. <laughs> okay, right? Like uh-huh. This this is damaging for our interpersonal relationship and the the professional relationship that we were planning on to have for decades to come. Yeah. So with those few exceptions, um, it's exciting. It's okay. Let's talk about the plans. Uh, your typical startup wants to raise another round 18 months from now, and will need to go out and start raising 12 months from now. And so we cannot be slow about talking about the goals, about how we're going to achieve those goals. We can't wait three months for the next board meeting to start getting serious. Because if we're waiting three months, that's 25% of the time required to achieving those goals that need to be hit in 12 months. And so as much as it's fun and there's a little bit of excitement, um, we need to talk business now. Yeah. Right. Let's talk about those metrics. Let's talk about the KPIs. Let's talk about the hiring. Let's talk about the staffing. Um, Every single aspect needs to be talked about now. And if there's anything that's not going well with the company, we must talk about it now because a startup cannot afford to waste three months before seeking feedback or advice on how to handle an issue. Because that's 25 percent of the time between the fundraise and starting to pitch for your next round of financing.
0: All right. So you get as excited as everyone is, you need to get down to brass tacks, the metrics, the hiring, the plan, the goals. Um, and then what, and it's monthly for the first year. Uh, and then does the board get into a rhythm? What, what, what typically happens in the second, third, fourth? What's the, what's the, the, the sort of rhythm of a board meeting for the phases?
1: Yeah. Your typical cadence of meetings is normally either quarterly or every two months. Um, And then with those calls, uh, one-on-one calls every, let's say, two weeks. I see. Um, And again, there can be different kinds of relationships, text or whatever. But uh, a call every two weeks is a nice cadence um, to keep everyone uh, abreast of updates with the company, both good and bad. Um, You'll probably hear a lot of investors say, I love to hear good news, but I want to be the uh, first call when there's bad news. Um, and, uh, and so that's the most important thing for me is, is really, if there's bad news, let me know if an important client's leaving, if there is an important sales pitch that just didn't work out that we had really forecasted in, uh, if there's an important employee issue, right, let's just talk about it. Um, and so don't wait till the next board. That's the worst thing you can do. Don't wait again. We're in startup land. Yes. Time is of the essence. Um, And then when things are discussed immediately, then we can actually take our time a little bit in coming to a conclusion because we've allowed a little bit of buffer there. Um, But if you wait a month to discuss it, well, now we don't have that buffer time to discuss how to solve the issue. Um, And so that's really, really important. Uh, And then the the individual board meetings themselves, uh, there's been some great decks published by the likes of Sequoia on the Ideal. Uh, uh, slide deck used for a board meeting. Um, The goal with the board meeting, uh, one, there is some level of reporting, but the idea is that, um, or my favorite board is the one where the CEO sends out the board deck a week in advance. Ah. Any good board member will read the deck in advance and will ask their questions in advance by email. And so, maybe the first 20 or 30 minutes we go over the reporting fairly quickly you know here's the KPIs here's the revenues here's the people we plan on hiring uh et cetera. but that should not take much time if the CEOs email the board deck in advance and if the board members were responsible in asking their questions in advance so then there should not be much discussion about reporting and then the CEO can say here are two or three Big things that I want to discuss. Mm. It could be we only have the bandwidth to do uh, one of these following two large opportunities. Which one should we pursue? Let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Or should we uh, release a, a Bitcoin token? <laughs> right, right. That's going to be a lot of work. Should we? Should we look into it? Right. Those kinds of high-level things. Should we choose to? cancel all our planned hires in sales because we think we need to shift that budget over to engineering to really build the best platform, right? Those are big level decisions. And it's if the board meeting does not spend too much time on the reporting aspect, then we can talk about those big things collectively. And of course, if the CEO has done a good job of maintaining good one-on-one relationships and having good calls with the board members, the point of that board meeting is that the CEO already knows what each of the board members thinks, but the board members themselves might not like we try to speak to each other, but we have many other things to do too. Um, And so that's the, that's where we can collectively see what each other's thinking and hopefully build upon each other's ideas in a very constructive way. Right.
0: You use that word constructive, which is fantastic and giving us a window into this is is super helpful. I think because, you know, in the, blogosphere and the twitter sphere there's so such a fraught relationship uh uh, again you know at least theoretically between founders and board members right you know you know when people talk about it etc but i think the reality is is when founders have a great board and there's a great trusting relationship it's it's an incredibly positive influence on a on a company you know it's it's like a, a it's a team everyone's got the same goals in mind and is moving in that direction and they're helping each other alike. um, and it's kind of, um, a discipline and a, and a, and a, and a rhythm and, and a, and a, almost like a coach coaching relationship that the CEO and, and founding team can benefit from. Do you see what I'm saying?
1: Very much so. And at the end of the day, um, a common line that's used in venture, and I've definitely used it is as an investor and as a board member telling the CEO, I work for you. Yes. Technically we can fire you, but other than that, I work for you. Right. If, and so if you tell me that you need me to help be in the interview loop for a critical hire. Yes. If you need introductions to certain people in media, yes. If you, whatever it is, right? Like whatever those things are, I am there to try to help make you successful. Uh, and that's that should always be the dynamic. And in addition to that, um, because I was previously a VP at startups and, and um, was sometimes not in the boardroom, uh, I've seen occasions where sometimes the CEO would tell the employees, the board decided X, Y, Z. And that's never the way that, uh, that a CEO should ever want to communicate with his or her team it should always be about the CEO owning the decision. Yes. Right? Yes. And never blame it on the board uh, because then that kind of reduces the power and influence of the CEO in front of the entire team. That's not good. Um, The CEO needs to own it.
0: Fantastic. Thank you for that. So we've talked about now the dynamics between the founders and the board members. What about the dynamics internally on on a VC team? Give us a little window into that and, what works and what doesn't, et cetera?
1: Yeah, so within a VC firm, yeah, um, every firm is different, right? And here's, but let me take that vague statement and make it concrete. Uh, There are some firms out there that have four former Googlers and Facebookers. Yep. Great. You know what their value add is going to be, or you can make certain assumptions. Uh, There are some firms that are three former investment bankers. Mm. All right. We (laughs) kind of have an idea what their value add is going to be, too. Right. At White Star, we've chosen to really get complementary skill sets, not only across the firm, but also uh, across any given office. And so an example of that is when the, one of the co-founders of White Star uh, based out in New York, Eric, was when he brought me on. The reason that he was looking for my profile of a former product leader, a computer scientist, but someone who had a passion for venture was because he is a former boutique M&A investment banker, right? And so he didn't want to hire a mini me. And so as a result, when we look at and evaluate startups, we see them from different lenses and we come together. When it comes time to helping companies, again, our value-add to companies are very, very different. If you think about the shoes of a CEO, do you want a VC firm where the value add of all the people in that firm is quite similar or do you want a VC firm where the value add of the people in that firm is all quite different? And so with white star, because uh, we operate as a a fund across all cities, so we don't have a different fund per city, right? Globally, we're all focused on the same fund. It means that uh, not only emotionally, but also financially, I care as much about the success of the company in Spain as I do in New York. And that means for our entrepreneurs, when they need help with something and I'm not an expert on it, there's going to be someone in White Star who is an expert on it. And I'll bring them in and they'll joyfully come in, not only to help me or to help the company, but because at the end of the day, it's good for White Star's financial returns. So we're fully aligned with that. And I love that that idea. If I were to bring on Uh, Another person in in the New York office, it would probably be someone who's uh, great in Excel, great at waterfall models, (laughs) great at turning uh, uh, closing docs into an Excel model who can dig into the KPIs and like, I have an MBA. I can do this stuff. But I know that there are things that will take me an hour and a half that those people with that level of background can do in 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, again, a complementary skill set. And, you know, there's other kinds of skills, too, that would be great to have within White Star because they're skills that we don't have. And we're going to continuously, relentlessly, for many, many years to come, continue to try to identify weaknesses in a White Star skill set that can be beneficial to our portfolio globally.
0: Fantastic stuff. Uh, You and I have talked about this before. VC is profoundly a relationship business? Um, you know, how, how do you, you know, throughout our talk today, you've talked about the different dynamics and relationships, founders, internal teams. What What is your, how do you think about relationships in VC and in tech in general?
1: My relationship with other VCs has to be based on trust and of mutual success. There are many VCs out there who I openly say in emails and in conversation that we are trying to find ways to work together someday. And what that means, the quote unquote, we want to work together someday, it means we want to invest in the same company. Now, some of those investors might be seed investors and I might be a follow on investor to them. Some of them might be series C and series D investors and they might follow on in my investments. And then some of them might be Series A and B investors. And then it's that uh, dance of trying to find a way to invest together in the same round. Um, And each of those relationships are really, really important. And so we send each other uh, interesting investment opportunities. We call it deal flow or deals. I don't like the word deals so much, right? It's interesting companies that happen to be raising a certain amount of capital. And knowing which of the people, which of the VCs that I trust, uh, invest at a certain stage and send them the companies that I think are interesting at that stage. Um, and so that we can work together. Um, so there's trust there between investors. Uh, there's trust, of course, as we talked about earlier, between us and the management team and the CEOs. Um, and I also really enjoy having trust, not only with the CEOs, but that next level of management is also really mm. important. The head of technology, the head of product, the head of sales, the head of customer success, mm. uh, business development. Um, and I enjoy helping out those those kinds of people too um, because at the end of the day, there's more than just a CEO. Right. And then there's all the other kinds of relationships with corporates, uh, with media. Um, and an example of a relationship with a corporate, it can be many things. It can be helping our company do business development with that corporate through an introduction. It can be for uh, mergers and acquisitions. It can be me diligencing an investment opportunity. uh, And I know that corporate is an expert in that vertical. Uh, Right. And if we have a trusted relationship, I can call them up and say, hey, I'm really I'm looking into vertical X. I know you're into that. Can we talk about that? What are you seeing? Mm -hmm. Right. And of course, people at the large corporates have a different um, view of the world. And they're exposed to many, many startups. And they're also exposed to what the large companies are doing behind the scenes. Right? But there, again, we need to have that trusted relationship for them to open up. And then reciprocally. Right. Right. Yeah.
0: It's the whole ecosystem. Right? It's all the layers. It is. Uh,
1: It's it's so important. You know, the funny part is, it was around a dozen years ago, um, I was introduced to uh, a senior executive at Yahoo. And I was back then a product manager who focused on my product and focused on my engineering teams, but didn't understand the world of relationships outside of my company. And uh, this executive, I had coffee with him, um, and he told me that 75% of his job was meeting people like me, either for recruiting or for business development, depending on you know um, the, the tone of the meeting. And I was blown away by that, right? Right, Because I, 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 I did not start my career as a super networker and someone who really valued these, uh, relationships across different businesses and different roles. It's something that I learned to appreciate, recognize the impact and then grew into it. Some people are born with it. Yeah. Some people are born with it. It's amazing. Right. And I was the opposite.
0: No, but the reality is, you know, the reality is, <laughs> most people are just doing their job, right? They're going in, and they occasionally will meet meet some other people by happenstance or at some events, but they don't have that sensibility, uh, especially early in their careers. A lot of people are just um, focusing on the task at hand, and um, that that's that's. A, a very visceral a memory you're sharing with us of like being in that mode, and then someone telling you, "I spend seventy five percent of my time meeting people." What, what is that,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so- like who does that? Oh, only one of the top senior execs of Yahoo back when Yahoo was a, a large, powerful company. Yeah, amazing. Okay, note taken. Maybe there's something there that uh, that I might want to reflect upon.
0: Right. Yeah. Right. So we've talked about all those layers of relationships in an ecosystem. Uh, you know, you're running White Star in New York. It's, a, it's a, got a global footprint. Tell us about your thoughts on New York and, and these sort of global tech ecosystems and, and how you're seeing all this play out right now.
1: Yeah, so as a firm, we really love the cities or the ecosystems, if you will, where there's great entrepreneurs, where the entrepreneur, entrepreneurs or people working at startups in those cities, they can pass the mom test, as as uh, many people call it in the industry, which is you can tell mom, "I'm an entrepreneur" or uh, "I'm working at a startup," and mom will say, "That's great," instead of saying, "Oh, that means you couldn't get a job anywhere else." <laughs> okay, okay, right? I've never heard uh, that.
0: That's and, cool. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it, it's uh, you know we didn't invent this, and it'd be great if we if the the, the world chose to uh, degender it. But, uh, um, yeah, it, it is what it is for now. Right, right. Um, but yeah, it's when, when you're, when your ecosystem, you can say you're an entrepreneur or you're working at a startup and people are happy for you and proud for you where people will celebrate some level of failure, but not to a ridiculous level where there is capital, where there is mentorship, where there are big companies, um, where there are senior people to be hired. And so that's why we love cities like New York. Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Stockholm, and even now doing business development in Seoul and in Tokyo. Um, now you'll notice from that list that I did not mention San Francisco or China or India or Tel Aviv, and those are all, of course, great locations with great great entrepreneurship and a lot of capital. Uh, we have some concerns about the valuations of companies in those locations, um, and so. That's a large reason why we're not so focused on those places, even though they're great. Um, And I personally have made sure to continue keeping a lot of close relationships with investors in those locations, particularly, of course, San Francisco, because of a lot of the investors there can be great follow on investors for my portfolio. So every time I go out to the Bay Area, my days are stacked full of meeting with investors who mostly invest at a later stage than me so that I can be helping the entire global portfolio of having my portfolio be uh, impressed upon the later stage investors. So we love those uh, those ecosystems, you know, as I was saying, great talent, great capital, great mentorship, um, and we think there will continue to be more cities uh, that will cross the chasm, if you will, uh, of being great cities across many different verticals. Uh, was last quarter where New York surpassed the Bay Area in terms of total capital raise. Yes, it was a blip in the radar because of WeWork. Um, but we will continue to see more and more blips in the radar. At the end of the day, New York does not need to compete with the Bay Area. And I don't appreciate articles that talk about the next Silicon Valley or New York competing with San Francisco. We don't need to compete with the Bay Area because we have such great professional diversity. Right And so New York's, New York's ecosystem, not tech ecosystem, the population at large in New York, there's people in tech, in media, in finance, in hospitality, in pharmaceuticals, in so many industries that we are not reliant on tech. So as a result, we don't need to be San Francisco. We are our own city. That's a very professionally diverse city in New York and in London and in Toronto and all these other cities. When you're at dinner and you're meeting your friends of friends we've never met or you're Listening in on the table beside you. They're not talking about Jack Dorsey and Elon Musk (laughs) and whoever else, right? They're talking about different things. And so San Francisco is that one city that we don't want to emulate in certain ways. Of course, San Francisco has done many great things. But San Francisco does not have that professional diversity that the other cities do. And while it's a fun joke to talk about over dinner time, what people are saying, What that also means in terms of talent for startups is that startups in each of these other cities can recruit great people from an NBC, from a great insurance company, from a, a great investment bank, and they're right next door. That's powerful, and it's powerful also in all those other great cities.
0: Fantastic. Fantastic. Lylan, I I want to be respectful of your time. This has been tremendous. Uh, I hope to have you on again next year, but thank you so much, my friend. We'll continue this conversation.
1: It's always a pleasure, Dave. All of our shows
0: are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. And make sure you subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio. Any feedback or five-star reviews are always much appreciated.
1: Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know?